0: We're in Revelation chapter 13. We're finishing up 13 this week. And um, if you'll turn in your Bibles to chapter 13. And uh, okay, let me get it all set up here. All right. Um, Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your word. God, we just pray, Lord, that you would open, reveal yourself to us through it. Um, help us to be wise in the times we live in. Lord, help us to look forward to your coming. Be expectant of it, Lord, and be faithful servants until that time. Forgive us, Lord, for our complacency. Forgive us for those times at which we we tend to join the scoffers and saying, oh, it's not now. It's not around the corner. It's far off. Lord, forgive us for those attitudes. And, Lord, help us to just grow in you, to become mature Christians and wonderful evangelists for your kingdom. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, so last week we started in Revelation chapter 13, and we had this beast out of the sea being introduced. And this beast is serving the dragon who was mentioned in chapter 12. And, and of course, we said that this beast is the Antichrist. He's also the one mentioned in Daniel. We talked about Daniel's visions, and, and he's the little horn that replaces three other horns on the, the final beast or kingdom that t- is to come. We, we know that he's going to be a world ruler. And uh, we know that, that he is going to set himself up as king and he'll be the one who causes the abomination that causes desolation that Jesus talked about in his, um, his Olivet Discourse. Now, if you're not familiar with these words that I'm talking about, uh, Daniel prophesied and Jesus prophesied that the Antichrist would come into the temple, a, a, a future temple yet to be built. And uh, he would declare himself God or or cause such an abomination to happen that it would cause desolation, that everybody would scatter from it. And we saw a, a, a little bit of a fulfillment in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes and um, when, when, uh, before Jesus' time when he came into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar and he spread pig juices over everything and it, it just completely desolated. Uh, desecrated the temple, and they couldn't worship there, and it was a, a total abomination. But Jesus let us know that Antiochus Epiphanes wasn't the guy. There's one yet to still come. And, of course, that will be the, the future fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy as well. And then the term Olivet Discourse, Jesus' disciples came up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, how will we know when the end comes? And he went into a sermon. And that's and it was on the Mount of Olives. So in in... We we refer to that as the all of it discourse. So just so, so I can define those terms for you, but we've been looking at the Antichrist, and last week I didn't really get a chance to get into it. But you know, there's been so many different people who have uh, they've they've tried to pin the Antichrist on different people throughout history, and uh, we know that this number, which we're going to get into tonight, six hundred and sixty six, is related to the Antichrist. And often throughout history, they've tried to. Uh, say that different people are, are related to that number, 666. Emperor Nero, he persecuted the church, and his name in Hebrew can add up to 666. And then uh, Emperor, Emperor Constant, um, Constantius, he was the 4th century church father of Athanasius, made this uh, connection with Constantius. Uh, Athanasius made this connection, and he said that he was the Antichrist. And then Pope Leo the Tenth. Um, the Catholic Pope said that Martin Luther was the Antichrist. um, And and, uh, because Martin Luther uh, spoke so much against the Catholic Church, and then of course the Protestants said that the Pope was the Antichrist. So, you know, depending on which side you were on, you can throw out the Antichrist. Napoleon Bonaparte in Leo uh, Tolstoy's novel War and Peace, uh, if you look at the way he uses him throughout the series, the number adds up to 666. Adolf Hitler, if you assign the value of 100 to the letter A, then 101 to the letter B, and so on, Hitler adds up to 666. Henry Kissinger. (laughs) Kissinger was a Middle East peacemaker of Jewish ancestry. His name in Hebrew adds up to 111 and uh, 666 divided by 6. So they've worked out that Henry Kissinger could be the Antichrist. Pope John Paul II recovered from a serious gunshot wound after an assassination attempt. Remember, we talked about the beast receiving a, a, some sort of a head wound or trauma. Ronald uh, Reagan had six letters in each name, but Ronald Wilson Reagan is his full name. Uh, so, and he also recovered from a wound that seemed fatal. So possibly he was the Antichrist. And then Barney the Dinosaur. I'm not joking about this at all. If you write cute purple dinosaur in ancient Latin characters, it becomes cute purple dinosaur. Extract the Roman numbers, add all the numbers together, and the result is 666. <laughs> and then, of course, Barack Obama, the day after the 2008 election, guess what the Illinois uh, pick three lottery numbers were? 666. And, and some of you guys are like, yes, I knew it. No, no, no. <laughs> Bill Gates, the third. Um, uh, turn, uh, none of the twisted ways of turning his name into 666 is very convincing. But let's face it, haven't we all wondered about this one when using Control-Alt-Delete to restart a frozen computer? Uh, so you just wonder if he is the Antichrist. And then, of course, lastly, the World Wide Web, www. Um, in, in Hebrew, the, 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 what would be similar to our W, Vav, 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 is representative of the number 666. So um, there's all these different theories about who exactly is the Antichrist, but um, I think what we're going to find out is the Bible will make it clear. And, and again, I don't think necessarily that Christians will see this person coming on the scene. But we're 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 told in this in this passage uh, some things about this beast and the things that he's going to be doing. Now we're looking at the second, the third person of this unholy Trinity, this counterfeit Trinity. Remember. The Trinity is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting the way the Trinity works? I mean, have you thought about that? That the Son submits to the Father. The Son uh, points to the Father. The Son reconciles us to the Father. The, the, The Holy Spirit empowers us to live godly lives, doing that work of sanctification in us, to be with the Father. There's this mutual glorification for our good. That we see in the Trinity. But the unholy Trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the, be- the, the second beast or the false prophet, they all lead to death. They all, all deceive. And so we're looking at that third person of this unholy Trinity. So let's start in verse 11 tonight. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. It might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666, or 666. So let's go ahead and start working on this passage. First thing John sees is the second beast. The first beast, if you remember, came up out of the sea. The second beast is coming from the land. And the second beast is the partner. It's, it's the, the sidekick. And we know everyone needs a sidekick, right? Well, here we have this unholy sidekick and it seems like this unholy sidekick's whole purpose is to bring worship to the first beast. Now, I want to I note that this second beast that we see, unlike the first that had horns, if you, if you go back to the first part of 13, the first beast had 10 horns, 7 heads, with 10 diamond diadems or crowns and, on its horns. So the first beast had these, these horns, and horns always represent strength. Horn, horns, rep, horns in the Bible represent power. If you see an animal with horns, you go, okay, I got to be cautious with that animal. You know, I don't want to get gored by its horns. Now, we've kind of lost some of that because we're not out working with uh, livestock all the time. We don't, we don't consider horns the uh, signs of power so much in our day. But they definitely were in the, in, um, the writing of, of the Bible so the first beast had these ten horns, it was, and he had crowns on the horns, very powerful. The second beast, notice what it has, two horns like a lamb. Two horns like a lamb. Have you seen the horns on a lamb? Aren't they ferocious, those little tiny nubs? You know what I'm talking about? They're actually, you, you actually wonder on a little lamb if those are actually horns. They're just like hard bumps underneath the surface. Lambs don't have these powerful horns. In fact, this lamb here looks so subtle. In fact, I even wonder if this second beast coming from the land, the land is even uh, some sort of a person who's claiming to be the reincarnated Christ or, or even Christ come back. We, we really don't know how all these things are going to work out. We just speculate for the most part. But notice how it speaks. It spoke like a dragon. What, how does a dragon speak? You know, Jesus told us that when he was rebuking the Pharisees, he said, You speak in the same tongue as your father the devil, because when he speaks, he lies. And that's all he does. He doesn't know how to do anything other than lie. And this 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 little lamb has a powerful voice speaking lies and blasphemies, just like that, that first beast coming up out of the sea. And it exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence. That first beast has given authority to this, this false prophet, the second beast. And uh, I hope I don't confuse you, confuse you constantly with using the term beast. And I, I, by the way, I want to remind you what I said last week. Although we look on the outward appearance of things, and I'm sure that this, these beasts won't look like beasts to us, I think God does a really good job in his apocalyptic literature of showing us what it actually looks like. These ferocious beasts—they they may look timid, but <laughs> this is what they really are inside. And uh, so that's that's one of the things, that reasons why I think John used these terms all the time. Uh, beasts are are uh, untamable; they're they're wild. They they look to devour and tear up. So this one's exercising the authority of the first one, and all of its inhabitants, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Let me talk again about the mortal wound. In the second half of Revelation, or this chapter in Revelation, chapter 13, we see twice it refers back to the mortal wound. Um, So here in uh, verse 3, and then of course we also see uh, it talks about the wound by the sword in verse uh, 14. And uh, last week I I talked to you about how I, I tend to think that this is really speaking of a revived empire, an empire thought to be dead, and is back. So many Bible scholars think that the beast, the Antichrist, the first beast out of the sea, will have some sort of assassination attempt put on him. Uh, he'll be shot, or something will happen. That's one of the reasons, by the way, they thought Gorbachev was the beast. You saw that that uh, birthmark wound thing on his head uh, for uh, those of you guys that were alive when Gorbachev was <laughs> in charge. So, but. Uh, Anyway, this, this, many scholars will take the, the stance that that beast is actually some mortal wound. I tend to reject that just because, and I'm not saying I'm right, okay. And I'll have a great seat from heaven to watch all this. So, you know, we'll see how it works out. But uh, the, the, I, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament that Satan is given power over the dead, to raise from the dead. That's only God's alone. So I don't see that Satan can resurrect a beast who's mortally wounded from the dead in some way. I don't see that that's his power. So that's why I tend to think that that mortal wound is speaking about an empire that was thought to be done or destroyed and is revived. We'll see. I I don't know. But these are speculations. Going on with this second beast who performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven and earth in front of people. Have, Have you noticed how... When you talk to somebody about God, many times they're like, well, you know, I want to see some miracle, some sign. happen in the Bible. What doesn't happen today? And um, like if they actually saw God do a miracle, they would actually turn and believe. How many times in the Bible have we seen God do miraculous signs and instead of belief happening, hardness of heart happens? I wonder if you've ever thought that the reason why we don't necessarily see quite so many miracles in this, in this current time, this church age. I mean, there are miracles happening. But because of the fact that it will actually has a process of hardening someone's heart to faith versus bringing them to faith. I mean, let's look at Pharaoh for a minute. God said to Moses before he, the, the plagues even started, Moses, I'm going to use you. You're going to go before Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. And guess what Pharaoh's going to do? He's going to harden his heart towards you. And then I'm going to, I'm going to deliver my people with great signs and wonders. But Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. And what do we see happen? Every And, and by the way, the, the scripture also says that I will, God speaking of God, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. And and it's almost like every time these miracles happen, as, Moses, as Pharaoh is about to relent or about to give way, Pharaoh changes his mind and he hardens his heart towards God and his people. The, the miracles didn't do it. And, of course, we saw Janus and Jambres, their names are given in, um, in uh, Timothy. Pharaoh's magicians who tried to counterfeit the first couple miracles. They did a counterfeit miracle too. Oh, Pharaoh, don't believe this? Here, we'll, we'll turn water into blood. There you go. We've done this counterfeit miracle. So I don't necessarily think that miracles will cause people to have faith. It's truth. Truth is what brings faith. Truth. And deciding to want the truth versus want to be deceived. But these, this, this false prophet's going to perform all sorts of miracles. We see that. And uh, I'm sure that maybe in the time frame here, uh, we, we, we know that we have the, the two real prophets prophesying that were put to death and they were celebrating their death and then God raised them from the dead and they ascended into heaven. And now uh, I, I'm wondering if that's going to allow for the abomination that causes desolation, which we, we read about that in chapter 10 or 11. And, uh, and then the, the abomination that causes desolation and this second beast trying to say, oh, no, we've got a more powerful religion than those false prophets. We'll, we'll show you some miracles. We're going to show you some stuff. But what we're going to see is people worshiping. Now, you and I might look at this and go, well, it's kind of hard to believe that people are just all going to start worshiping the same God, right? I don't think so. You know, as much as people, it's popular right now to be atheist, what we're finding, well, we're seeing it again, I should say. It's kind of cyclical where people reject God and then there's this spiritual vacuum and then they look for something spiritual. Because the fact is, is you and I, we were created. We have a need inside of us to worship. Worship something, someone that transcends us, our, our culture, our country, our world. We have a need for something more powerful than us. And, it, and, and of course, many evangelists over the years have put it as a God-shaped hole in us that only God can fit in. But it is a need that we were created to do. We were created to worship our creator. And I'll tell you right now, only the living God can satisfy that need. All other things are just false, false tries and efforts at, at fulfilling this need. But I, there's no question about it, the beast is going to convince the world that he's fulfilling this need. Tell, and notice what he's going to do. He's going to deceive all those who dwell on the earth. Telling them to make an image for the first beast. So actually we're going to see a new form of idolatry happen. It's interesting. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy fourteen thirteen. Second 2 Timothy. Chapter, chapter 4. And go to verse 13. Um, oh, and you know what? I went to the wrong scripture here. Hold on. Let's go to, uh, sorry. Go to verse uh, 3. For some reason I put the wrong reference there. Um, <clears throat> go to verse 3. It says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Interesting that Paul tells us the time is coming. And, and by the way, the gospel is really new at this point. We're, it's it's not even 50 years old at this point that Paul is writing to Timothy telling him, "Hey, a time is coming when when people aren't going to tolerate sound teaching." And what is sound teaching? Well, well When we talk about sound doctrine or sound teaching, we're talking about teaching that is true and teaching that impacts the way I live. We're not talking about knowledge. The Bible, when it talks about doctrine, doctrine is always meant to be applied in the life of the hearer. It's not just meant to be heard and forgotten or heard for the sake of knowing something. Doctrine is about us confronting our will with the divine will. And, and moving towards God. That's what sound teaching should do for us. It should move us towards God. And, and Timothy is told in the church, he's taken over the church in Ephesus and he's told, hey, just get ready for this. People, uh, this time is coming when they're not going to endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Man, I I feel like Paul wrote that for today. I I, I really feel like he wrote that for for our culture, that that so many people are turning away from truth and turning to get their itching ears satisfied from a teacher that will say that their passions are okay. We see it all over in our culture. Uh, Last Friday night, we had a question and answer night with our youth group, and one young man who was, I think, very brave in, in asking this question Said, what does God say about me being a homosexual? I thought, well, first of all, that was really brave for him to come out and ask that question. I was I was actually really impressed that he just said that. So we started going through the, the scripture and and but I'll tell you right now, when I get asked those questions, I don't want to answer. <laughs> I don't. Do you? No. <laughs> We'd love to avoid it and go, oh, look at the butterfly. And run away, you know. That's what we love to do. But I know that God has put this young man in this place to ask this question so that he can hear the truth and possibly be healed. I know that. So we went to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and we started talking about what the Bible defines as homosexuality versus the culture. You see, the, the culture defines homosexuality as someone feeling Attraction to someone of the same sex, or someone not feeling attracted to someone of the opposite sex. That's how our culture defines homosexuality. The Bible defines homosexuality the same way it defines someone who's an idolater, or adulterer, or greedy, or drunkard. It's someone who acts on these things and continues on in them. There's action involved. We know it's not a sin to be tempted. We know it's a sin to act on our temptation. And so I, I, I first preface it with how do you define it because here's how the Bible defines it. And the Bible in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says that he gives this list and he says, don't you know that the, sexu- the sexually immoral, the adulterers, the immoral, the idolaters, the greedy, the homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then there's a but. And I'll tell you right now, I love the Buts in Scripture I love them. But you were washed. You were sanctified." Actually, it says, "Which is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were cleansed by the blood of the lamb." That's an amazing statement from Paul. "Yeah, we were all idolaters, greedy, drunkards, thieves, immoral, but we've been washed. And God has started this process of making us holy. He's changed us. And, and in the end we said, listen, the gospel is for all people everywhere. It's, it's for the drunkard. It's for the adulterer. It's for the idolater. It's for the homosexual. It's for the greedy. The gospel is for you. It's good news saying you don't have to remain that way. God is calling you out of it. But see, the, here's the problem. We have to consider the cost We've got to decide, am I ready to follow Jesus? Do I I recognize that the cost of following Jesus, what is going to cost me? Me letting go of my desires, my passions, and following Jesus is worth it. And I'll tell you right now, it's absolutely worth it. I love that old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And I'm I'm not going to sing it with you because I have this habit of singing wrong tunes. But... No turning back, no turning back. I love that. Once you taste of the Lamb, once you taste of that life changed by Christ, there's no turning back. Why go back? Why go back into the sin? Because the fact is, is my passions, my sinful nature are deceitful. They will never fulfill or satisfy or bring about the happiness that I hope that they would. They only bring the heartache. It is in Jesus Christ alone that we receive truth. And we have a world full of false teachers who are telling people, deceiving people, leading them astray, saying, no, you can bring your your sin and continue on in your sin. Here's how we're going to justify it. They'll start saying, hey, in the Hebrew it says this. And don't believe them, they're liars. They'll start saying all that your itching ears want to hear For you to stay in your sin. Listen, that is not a friend. The proverb says, an enemy multiplies kisses, but trustworthy is the rebuke of a friend. A friend tells the truth. Someone who loves you tells you the truth. An enemy deceives. An enemy leads you to death. False teachers, they desire to lead you astray. And this beast we see is a false prophet. His whole goal is to deceive and point to Satan. What was Jesus Christ's goal? To tell the truth and point to God, point to life. It's interesting too because those who know Jesus know his voice and hear it. Those who want their itching ears to be satisfied, they go after false prophets. You know, I have two books up here. And the first book I, I received, and I don't know how I got on this list. I got this in the mail a couple of years ago, and I felt really kind of amazed by it, because um, Warren Jeffs, you know who he is. Um, <laughs> he was, uh, if you don't know who he is, uh, he was part of a, a, a Mormon group uh, of polygamist, and he got arrested and put in jail. Uh, for tax evasion as well as polygamy and all sorts of stuff. So anyway, Warren Jeff sent me a book. I'm not sure if it's a good thing that I was on his mailing list or not. I have no idea how I got on it. But (laughs) anyway, he sent me a book. And uh, it's a book full of his prophecies. And uh, there's testimony to these prophecies being given in the front. And uh, here's an interesting prophecy to the United States of America to the honorable president of the United States of America, now as standing at the head of this nation, I who dwell on the earth high, even your Lord and Savior who redeemed all mankind by the shedding of his own blood and who is over all and has all power send you my word, cause that my servant who presides over my church now be delivered by thy hand. Let my servant go that he may perform his mission to prepare my people for my coming. Cause that the prosecutors now cease their attack upon my servant. Warren Jeffs. I like that. He sends a prophecy from Jesus about himself to get himself out of jail. He, 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 he continues on about that. Thus saith the Lord, <laughs> um, release, uh, cause, uh, let my people go. Uh, now uphold my will and free my servant Warren Jeffs. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry you guys weren't cool enough to get this book. This book here, this book here is also a book full of false prophecy. You, this is uh, the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. And, and I, I, it's not engraved for my name. I buy these at the, the, the Deseret bookstore when I go to Utah. But you can get it for a dollar. It's a lot cheaper than buying it off the shelf. Anyway. <laughs> so, but in the Doctrines and Covenants, Joseph Smith prophesied that a temple would be built before he died in uh, Missouri. Guess what, when that was built. Oh, it wasn't ever built. Never built. False prophet, false teacher. Telling people what their itching ears want to hear, but there's no substance to it. And you know what, God was smart enough to know that we have this desire to follow people. We, we can get caught up in following those who are really dynamic, exciting speakers and in Deuteronomy, he tells us this, Deuteronomy 18, I want you all to turn there in your Bibles and, and you're going to underline this verse. This is really important for you to turn there in your Bible. Well, If you want to underline it, it's up to you. But Deuteronomy 18, God is telling the people of Israel that he will raise up prophets like Moses to come. And, and, and he says, well, what about the, the instance that you think somebody might be a false prophet? What do you do? You're not just supposed to believe someone because they say they're a prophet. No, in verse 20, God gives you the test of the prophet. He says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken, verse 22 when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You need not be afraid of a false prophet. Follow the true prophet. If, if a prophet speaks something and it does not come to pass, that person is a false prophet. No matter how well you might like the guy. No matter how well you might say, I've invested my life in these people. I've invested my time, my talents. I've looked forward to what they were saying. I was excited about what they were saying. No, they're a false prophet. They need to die. You need to leave that. You need to leave it behind because false prophets only lead to death. Death. It's interesting, this chapter in Revelation, I see a couple things about false prophets. One, the false prophet points to Satan. Jesus points to God. Two, they're, they're, they're motivated, motivated by self and personal gain. This false prophet performs great signs, miracles, exercising power. They're motivated by themselves. Did you see what Jesus was motivated by? I came to serve, to be the servant of all. We, see, we don't see Jesus motivated collecting tithes and offerings so he can, he, he can make a great mansion and tell everybody how blessed they are. No, Jesus said that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He, he, he wasn't amassing wealth for himself. He, he, he wasn't coming. I mean, really, they were hoping. Israel was hoping. In fact, he could have mustered Israel up to overthrow or at least start a great war with Rome. He could have done it. That's what they wanted. But he didn't. Instead, he went to a cross. In fact, on G- the night before Jesus' death, as he's getting ready to institute the Lord's Supper table, uh, when, he's, he, when he's giving us this, this new tradition to have in, within the church, as the men are coming in, as those disciples are coming in, we see Jesus getting down and washing the feet of his disciples. Washing them. The servant of all. That's what our master does. He doesn't promote himself to to gain or power. Last thing is, a false prophet leads to death. That's what they always lead to. They're never going to lead you to life. They They might have great words. You know, they say about Hitler, Hitler was a different person when he spoke those public speeches that he would give. Hitler would, when he, something would come over him when he would speak and everybody thought that he, he spoke like a dragon. The, he, he spoke with such power and force and everybody was like, yes, we're ready to follow. But he only would lead to death. That's all false prophets are ever going to do. They'll lead you right into the grave. They'll, lead, they'll tell you everything you want to hear. They'll tell you everything you need to hear. But they will lead you right into the grave. Versus Jesus Christ, he's going to lead you into life eternal. That's what he he wants to do. Yeah, it might not be what you want to hear, but it's definitely what you need to hear. (laughs) I'd rather go with a person who tells me what I need to hear. This false prophet. Notice what he does when people don't start worshiping. This is the worst kind of persecution ever. He gives breath to this image, whatever this image is, he he gives the semblance that this image of the beast. It has almost a mind of itself or has come to life. I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe this is an internet thing that goes across the world. I'm, I'm not sure what it is in verse 15. But he gives breath to this and, and notice what happens. That he might cause everyone to worship. Verse 16, also it causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This beast will create the system of worship. And the only way you can be marked, the only way that you can receive this mark is by worshiping the image. And if you don't worship, you cannot buy or sell. Look at who's covered in that. Small and great. Rich and poor. Free and slave. The whole world will be under this dominion and forced to worship. Obviously the saints that will be during this tribulation period, will not receive this mark. And we know that they will give their lives. Um, the scriptures tell us that here in Revelation. But John calls out for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Let's talk about that number for one minute. We, we've seen lots of numbers in Revelation. We've seen seven a lot. And, we've, and, and now we're seeing sixes. Seven is, is God's number for completion. Now some pastors and teachers will say it's his number of perfection, but sometimes we see judgments come in sevens and and I, would, I, I, I think I want to just be a little more technical and say it's a number of completion or completeness. Remember the earth was the earth was created in six days and all that is in it and God rested on the seventh. That seventh day is that day of completion, that day of rest. so, so the number seven always represents God's completeness here, we see this number six. Uh, obviously, the the, num- the day man was created on the sixth day, six hundred and sixty six is that incompleteness, not finished, a false uh, a, a false completeness. It's kind of like quitting before everything's finished. Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen says something really interesting about King Solomon or the kings of Israel, and I'm just going to read these passages to you, and I'll go back over to Deuteronomy. And then we'll go to 2 Kings. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, God is giving instruction to Israel. And um, he, he's telling them eventually they're going to have a king. and Because uh, he knows it. They're going to have a king. Even though that's not the way it was supposed to go. And so he tells them in verse 17, he said that the king, in verse 17 shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So those are the rules for the king of Israel. When you get a king, here's the rules. You're not to acquire many wives because it will turn your heart away. And you're not to acquire many much silver or gold. Now turn with me over to First uh, Kings chapter 10. First Kings chapter 10. Now, if you remember Solomon, Solomon was given everything. He was given wealth. He was given power. He was given wisdom from God beyond him. That was the one thing he asked for. And, and Solomon was given the ability to build the temple, to bring the ark back. I mean, God bless Solomon. Solomon had the, probably one of the greatest barbecues ever known to man. When, when they dedicated the temple, it was just like when you read the number of, uh, of oxes that they sacrificed, it's like, oh, that would have been an awesome barbecue. So, but in, in verse chapter 10 of verse 14, look at what, what it says, speaking of his wealth. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Then it's going to go on to tell you about all that Solomon does. And and this chapter is going to go on to talk about about, um, all the wealth he gained, all the horses he gained, all the wives he gained. It almost was like the 666 talents of gold was the start of his downfall. And then it goes on in verse 9, uh, chapter 11, verse 9. It says, because he began to build altars and idols for his wife. Verse 9 says, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statues that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Sad that... Solomon did what God said ought not to be done. God said, don't do this, and Solomon kept doing it. It, That's what we call tempting God. When God says don't, when God reveals sin to you and you continue on in that sin. And the sad part is, it ended just like God said it would. Him losing everything. Everything being ripped away from him. No legacy. It's all gone. has been torn away. Listen, are you struggling with that? Are you tempting God because you continually go back into a sin? You continually go back knowing that God has told you over and over, he's revealed to you that you need to leave this sin behind, but you continue to submit yourself to it as to a foreign God or idol. I want to encourage you. Today's the day. Repent of that. Turn from it. Well, I don't have the strength. oh yes, you do. The Holy Spirit has been given to you. The Holy Spirit is powerful. You repent. you turn from that sin. You let God you let God take that sin away from your life and you you choose to move forward not tempting God anymore, and you follow Him. Now we turn there in the first place to look at that number six six six. but it, but the main point that I want to draw of application is, Do what God says because it will bring about life. Satan wants to bring about death and he wants to deceive you. You have that choice. Will I follow God or will I follow man and Satan? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord God, let us not be deceived. Lord... I pray that you purify our thoughts. Lord, let there be a clarity as we see this world and the things that tempt us. God, we ask that you would just help give us a mindset, Holy Spirit, that we can see things for what they are and the sin and what what it will bring about in our lives. Help us to keep our eyes focused upon you and our ears attentive to you, Lord Jesus, the one who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, we thank you, God, that you didn't come to to take from us. Lord, you came to give us and to serve us. So I pray anyone in this room tonight who is struggling with sin, Lord, set them free. Let them have a heart and a mind of repentance and a desire to do your will. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.